Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios, and it is a pleasure to welcome the most recent uh, recipient of the Nobel Prize in Medicine, James Patrick Allison, perhaps better known as Dr. Jim Allison, joins us here in our 1130 studios. Dr. Allison, thank you very much for being here, and congratulations on your Nobel Prize. And I'm wondering if you could just describe before you tell us about how you play the harmonica and you know, you've know you got a musical side that I think is pretty interesting, when did you learn that you had won the Nobel Prize along with uh, your counterpart in Japan? Uh, yesterday morning, my son called me at about 5.30 and said, Dad, you did it, you know, and, and uh, I thought, what, what? I was just waking up, you know, and then, uh, then a call came in from Sweden after that and uh, you know confirming it so it's rather nice that my son was first though <laughs> to tell me uh, well congratulations again Dr. Allison can you just give us a sense of how hard it was to do the research and persevere with it when a lot of people thought that your field of immuno oncology was voodoo science yeah it was it was uh, yeah voodoo or snake oil or various terms were used I, you know, I, I just didn't pay much attention to that. It was just background noise. I uh, focused on really understanding mechanisms of how the immune system worked until I had the details down and could just knew exactly what I thought, at least, exactly what we needed to do. So what is this, immuno-oncology? Well, it's, it's using your immune system, either targeting it or, in my case, just unleashing it to attack cancer cells because you've got these cells called T cells that go all around your body and they're kind of the soldiers of the immune system and they recognize uh, things that ought not to be there, virus infected cells or cancer cells or whatever, uh, recognize them. Uh, it's, it's a wonderfully complex and interesting process that I've been working on since 1982 and uh, um, you know, it's, it's just a beautiful thing and we finally learned how to manipulate it to direct the tumor cells to actually attack cancer. Dr. Allison, uh, as the uh, professor and also chair of immunology and executive director of immunotherapy uh, at the MD Anderson Cancer Center, can you uh, maybe describe how your discovery can not only apply to specific cancers that people may have, but for the whole understanding of how to fight cancer when it's diagnosed? Yes, well, well this, this approach is radically different from most approaches to cancer therapy, which target the cancer cell. This has, the, the therapy itself has nothing to do with the cancer cell at all. It has to do with manipulating the immune system, just generally. So potentially it could work against any kind of cancer, at least when I conceived of this in the mid-90s, that, that was the idea, since you're not treating cancer, you're treating the immune system, it could work against anything. And um, it turned out that that was not quite right, but but it works very real, uh, well against melanoma. For example, uh, patients that just get a, a single round of treatment with, with the drug I developed, 
22% of them are alive 10 years. I mean, they're basically cured. They're alive 10 years after therapy. And when added to a second drug that, that uh, Hanjo um, played a major role in discovering the, the response rate's about 60%, and we don't know how long they're going. But it's been approved by the FDA now, not only for melanoma, but for lung cancer, kidney cancer, bladder cancer, uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, head and neck cancer, the, the list goes on and on, Merkel cell cancer. Um, you know, so it is broadly applicable, but unfortunately what we've learned in the, in the last few years since these approvals started coming in is there are cancers that don't respond, such as glioblastoma and pancreatic cancer, and the response rates in other cancers are, um, you know, it's not everybody. It's somewhere 20 to 40% or in combinations up to 60%. But our job now is to get that up as close to 100% as we can and in as many kinds of cancer. And that's the goal of uh, of the immunotherapy platform at MD Anderson that that uh, I run you know, t- together with Dr. Padbini Sharma, who's an oncologist that does animal yeah. Dr. Allison, I'm wondering, you've been working on this particular type of cancer treatment for nearly four decades. Yes. And over that time, I'm wondering, do you feel like we are much closer to a fundamental breakthrough to make cancer less fatal? Yes, I think we're I mean, I think we're already there in some kinds of cancer. As I said, 60% of melanoma patients, when we started this work, uh, the median survival after diagnosis of metastatic melanoma was 11 months. It was basically a death sentence, and there were no drugs that it ever had any impact on that at all until we came along. And now, like I said, 20% of the people are alive 10 years after treatment and, you know, even more when you use it in combination. So, uh, but there's, you know, so this is a, is a fundamental shift in how we treat cancer. Again, you don't treat the cancer, you treat the immune system and unleash it to go after the cancer on its own. And so this is going to be, I would predict, not not replace chemotherapy and radiation and things like that, but together, that's the unique thing about immunotherapy is that it can be used together with these other kinds of therapy to improve their their efficacy. And the one thing that, one key thing that the immune therapies offer that the others don't is that once you've got a T cell, yeah. you've got it for the rest of your life. Just real quick, which companies you're working on to develop actual applications? Uh, a lot, several companies, uh, but key in helping us develop was a little company called Metarax that's been, since been bought by Bristol-Myers Squibb. Uh, so we do a lot of work with them, but we also work with a number of other companies. Dr. Jim Ellison, congratulations. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, truly a pleasure uh, to speak with you, and thank you for what you do. A lot of people I know are very grateful. Dr. Jim Allison, Professor and Chair of Immunology at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, also the winner of the 2018 Nobel Prize for Medicine. Thank you so much. And really an inspiration with respect to the perseverance for nearly four decades on something that a lot of people dismissed. Uh, really a pleasure having you here. We are broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. This is the time we talk about trade. And indeed, after yesterday's uh, public uh, airing of the details of the uh, USMCA. And much more. 
and much more, yes. <laughs> US, new concessions for U.S. farmers, new rules for digital commerce, and rules for U.S. content for automobiles. Here to help us understand the trade agreement is Duncan Wood, director of the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center, and he joins us now from Washington, D.C. Duncan Wood, thank you very much for being with us. What can you tell us about the details of this agreement and what do you believe the ramifications of the agreement will be for all three of the economies, Mexico, the United States, and Canada? Well, that's a, uh, that's a pretty big question, considering the, the economies combined, their trade is you know, more than sort of $1.4 billion, uh, trillion. Um, but uh, what I can say is that uh, I was happy to see a continuation of general principles of NAFTA um, in this new agreement. I think that we have actually ensured that the, um, the free trade environment in North America will continue uh, pretty much across the board. Um, there are some uh, areas where uh, the Trump administration was successful in, uh, in winning concessions uh, from its partners. And I would say that obviously, you know, we've we talked a lot about the dairy industry in Canada, but we've also talked about the, uh, the weakening of Chapter 11 investor state dispute mechanisms. Um, and, uh, you know, and also we've, we've seen you know, this insistence on higher regional content in the auto sector, as well as... Um, a, a content, a minimum content level of 40 to 45 yeah. percent coming from factories where workers make $16 an hour or more. So, you know, I think that perhaps the most interesting element of all of this is to say that business is going to accept it. Business is going to uh, celebrate the fact that they now have legal certainty, that investments can continue in the region, and they're going to work with the rules of the, of the new agreement to try to deepen the integration that we've already seen in North America. So I take it as a, as a positive step forward. It's far from perfect as an agreement, but which free trade agreement is. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, this is one thing that I think that, uh, you know, as we read the, the text in greater detail, we're finding that despite all of the little irritants that are still there um, and some uh, precedents that have been set, which are uncomfortable for free traders, it, it's a step in the right direction. All right. One thing that I'm struggling with is, does this agreement move more toward freer trade with fewer barriers or more uh, toward a sort of more protectionist approach? And I'm thinking in particular, the $16 an hour provision, which will effectively either force Mexico to dramatically increase pay or else produce things in the U.S. more. Yeah, I mean, the, you, you've identified one of the, uh, the, the, uh, the clearest examples of a, uh, a less free trade approach. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that's, that that's the thing that will stand out for a, for a lot of people. Um, we also have to recognize that the, uh, you know, that the, this new agreement doesn't resolve the problems dispute over Section 232 on aluminum and steel. Um, it doesn't even really resolve the dispute over the potential application of Section 232 on or the automobile sector, because whilst Canada and Mexico have carved out um, an exemption from that up to 2.6 million vehicles a year, um, that they're, they're still going to be subject to it, which you know goes against the principles of free trade. However, you know on the positive side, I would say this: what we've seen is we've seen a modernization of a of an agreement that uh, you know is more than two decades old that was considered to be an old lady of free trade agreement. We've included new issues so that the new agreement applies to areas of digital trade, intellectual property. You know, there's some interesting work there on on financial services. Uh, and so these are, I mean, it looks much more like a 21st century uh, free trade agreement than the NAFTA did. And I, I would say that that extends the, uh, the reach of free trade in the North American region. 
Can this agreement or parts of this agreement be used in future negotiations with China? I think that's certainly um, what's uh, what's behind a lot of the, uh, or at least some of the language that's in there. Um, I mean, the most obvious uh, standout here is uh, is the question of currency manipulation. There was no reason to include currency manipulation provisions in a NAFTA because neither Canada nor Mexico engage in that kind of behavior. But clearly, the United States wanted to establish a precedent whereby they could take this language to any potential um, uh, future free tech trade deal and. You know, the Japanese have already um, signaled that they're nervous about that. They know that that's coming to their their, their negotiations with the United States. Yeah. And, of course, this sets the precedent for China in particular. Duncan, I'm struck by the fact that you uh, think that this agreement will be good for U.S. energy companies. Can you explain? Yeah, um, I think that it is, uh, it's good for U.S. energy companies because, you know, first of all, you know, Mexico was excluded from the original uh, provisions, energy provisions of the NAFTA. Um, and, uh, you know, it is... It, Specifically required that it was excluded from the free trade of uh, of, of oil and gas um, because Mexico's system at the time was a closed system. Um, since 2013, Mexico has opened up its oil and gas sector. Mexico now has a a market-oriented um, energy sector, uh, and that has been under threat with the uh, with the new government which is coming into power in December in Mexico, the government of Andrés Manuel López Obrador, who is opposed to private investment in the oil and gas sector. But what uh, this treaty uh, ensures is two things. One, that there will continue to be the free trade in molecules and electrons across the North American space. And yeah. two, that Chapter 11 um, uh, provisions, in, in other words, investor state uh, prote- uh, dispute settlement mechanisms, will apply continue to apply to the energy sector, in particular to oil and gas. And so that gives a lot of the investors, American companies that have invested in Mexico, that gives them legal certainty, which they wouldn't have had otherwise. Duncan Wood, thank you so much for joining us and for analyzing uh, the agreement in such short a period of time to give us such a deep insight. Duncan Wood is director of the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. now is student loans and helping us here to understand this is brendan coughlin he is the president of consumer lending at citizens bank brendan thanks very much for coming in maybe just set the stage because you know i keep hearing a lot of numbers like one and a half trillion dollars in student loan debt but the student loan market includes private debt it also includes debt that in many cases is guaranteed by the federal government. Can you explain the marketplace and what we're facing? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me here today for what, what's, I think, one of the country's biggest challenges. The student loan uh, debt did just cross $1.5 trillion. It's growing at about twice the pace of inflation. And projections put it out at $3 trillion um, in, in just another 10 years. So just a very alarming situation that we're dealing with here that the country's going to be living with for a long time. Uh, you are right. When you get a new loan to go for, to go to school, about 93% of the time, that, don't, that loan is issued by the federal government through a variety of programs, and about 7% of the time it's, it's issued by a bank, which has full underwriting uh, and, and an assessment of your ability to repay versus the federal government, which, which has very, very limited uh, underwriting. 
So you just put out a survey where you talked to a number of younger uh, individuals in America about their student debt loads. Regret is sort of laced into every result of this survey, just a regret that they incurred so much debt. I'm just wondering, apart from going over some of the details of the actual survey, what could they have done to ameliorate some of these uh regrets yeah you know this is it's it's highly emotional when when you're entering school and the discussion between parents and children often is not detailed enough and folks don't understand what they're truly signing up for and they're not having the hard conversation of return on investment and as you make your choices whether it's which school or how much you're going to pay or how to pay for it and really all of it comes back to that doing your homework and being more prepared so you make these decisions eyes wide open um, going into school how many smaller or I guess uh, for-profit universities do you think would shudder if people did more of this sort of risk reward benefit analysis? Yeah, there's certainly a handful of decent for-profit schools, but but by and large, uh, many of them would be in real uh, real challenge. If you looked at the return on investment on, on some of these and, and did an assessment of the tuition you'd pay versus the, um, the, the salary and the graduation rates coming out. And keep in mind, the graduation rate across the entire country, including four-year public and private institutions, is right around 50%. So most of our issue in the country is that these kids are not matriculating to graduation. Um, uh, when you do get to graduation, you have a much higher success rate of, um, of, of, of getting a good job, but it's particularly exacerbated in the for-profit sector, for sure. There was a report, there is a report from the Brookings uh, Institute about student loans. And one of their conclusions is that by 2023, 40% of borrowers may default on their student loans. We're talking about... $560 billion in unpaid debt. Does that make sense to you? Well, so the data, uh, the, the, as, as we kicked off here with uh, most of the debt being issued by the federal government, the data is not... Um, readily publicly available um, to digest in a way that makes that easily answerable. Uh, but that does uh, seem consistent with all the information I've heard. Uh, and, and in the federal portfolios, customers are considered performing even if they're on a, um, a plan to repay, which could be as little as a $5 a month payment. So if you owe 700 and you're paying $5 a month, from, uh, from a statistical perspective, that's not considered um, in default. But you know, that's pretty darn close to default in my book. So we've got a lot of customers out there in the marketplace in the federal program that are not paying back. You know, if you juxtapose that against the banks, our default rate is about 2% as a as an industry. Citizens is at um, below 1%. So it's a very, very stark difference between bank loans and government loans. All right, I want to get this uh, more clear. Uh, so Brendan, you're the president of Consumer Lending at Citizens Bank. We know that student loans have become an increasing problem as it surges in, in the total outstanding. And people People talk about how it's a drag on the economy. Basically, these young people have so much debt, they can't save anything and they can't spend on a house and they're, uh, prolo- they're, they're postponing their family formations. They're not having kids because they're really expensive. Um, one thing that I'm wondering from you, how does a private organization play in this space and profit from this space at a time when there is such this, this huge weight out there that is sort of weighing down everything? Yeah, look, we, we can't control the entire environment. Obviously, the biggest issue here is the um, ever-increasing tuition costs across the country, and it's going faster than in inflation. So the only place that families are finding their way to pay for it is either you know 
postponing retirement or or taking out debt. What we can do is is inside of the, the framework of a bank, we've done a couple of things. So we put a more affordable option out there than most of the government programs, at least the ones that aren't subsidized. So when you go to school, we will give you a rate that's better and we will underwrite you to make sure we think you have a reasonably good chance to pay the bank back, which so, is good for us and the student. So wait, hold on a second. I want to I press you on that. So in other yeah. words, you decide, is this person competent? Are they studying something that's actually going to give them some leg up when they go try to apply for a job? Are those some of the things that you you look at we don't we don't look at their their intended uh, degree um, uh, there's a lot of risk of redlining and uh, unfair treatment on things like that but we do look at their income their parents are typically co-signing which is forcing this conversation in the family and the household around is this the right decision for us we both have some skin in the game let's make sure so all those things lead to a better and more informed decision which dramatically improves the ability to repay for the student at the end of it. We've also introduced a refinance program when you come out of school, which um, most folks surprisingly don't even know about yet, um, and spend in the market for five or six years. When you get out of school, if you get a job, the first thing you should do is look to trade in your old student loans because you got underwritten when you're 18, living with your parents with no credit score, now you're gainfully employed, you've built some credit, and hopefully you're on the way to moving out from mom and dad, right? Your profile could not be more different than when you got that loan. And we've been saving students about $250 a month on their student loan debt, which gets back to your question around accelerating your ability to buy a home, household formation, getting married, having kids. Now that refinancing that you just spoke about, and I'll give you about 20 seconds here, that refinancing could be for private student debt, but it can also be for public, for federal student debt, right? That's that's exactly correct. Uh, consumers make no distinction between the two, and um, we we will refinance either one of them. As and most of the industry that's in this business will as well. You know, one of the stats the survey put out was you know about sixty six percent of students have buyer's remorse on their decision. So either they wish they went to a less expensive school, or in some cases they wish they didn't go to school at all. So once you've made that decision, it is what it is. But you can take control of your finances, refinance it, and make it more affordable for you. Brendan Coughlin, thank you so much for being here. Brendan Coughlin is president of Consumer Deposits and Lending for Citizens Bank in Providence, Rhode Island. The leader of Italy's five-star movement, Luigi Di Maio, has warned that Italy's government will not retreat, quote, a millimeter from its spending plans amid pressures from the European Union. Here to tell us more is Alberto Gallo, Partner Portfolio Manager for Algebras Macro Credit Fund at Algebras, and he's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and he joins us now. Alberto, what do you make of Mr. DeMaio's statement? It looks a lot like the attitude, uh, the type of posture that the former finance minister in Greece, you know, Mr. Varoufakis, had uh, versus Europe. So very confrontational. Um, and it is the opposite uh, to his coalition partner, uh, Salvini, from the Northern League. So you have a government with two parties. Uh, one has been voted in the south of the country, um, the other one has been bordered in the north, which is richer and more industrial. Um, you know, Mr. Di Maio has been falling behind in consensus since the coalition started yeah. uh, in Italy, uh, while Mr. Salvini has been gaining. So I think this is a competition to raise 
the voice against Europe to try to gain back some votes. There is an internal dynamic between Mr. Di Maio and Mr. Salvini that are trying to raise for more consensus. However, uh, the um, you know s- some of the business components of the country are feeling the pain as you know yields go up and yeah. the investment uh, dries up. So we you know we, we think that in the end Mr. Salvini will win more consensus uh, and this could bring a more rational to the government, to the debate with Europe. So I guess, uh, you know, there's the internal uh, deliberations about the votes that the, that the five-star party could pick up. These are There's the external factor here, which is exactly as you're mentioning, Albert Alberto, uh, the yields rising. And if you look at the 10-year Italian yields now rising to the highest since March 2014, I'm wondering... Uh, from your vantage point, are yields poised to go much higher, in part because the European Union is fed up with the Italian drama and it's withdrawing from its stimulus program anyway? This is, uh, it, it's hard to understand and predict the dynamic of every tweet, you know, of every statement. <laughs> uh, generally, the consensus, and, and you know very well this from the U.S. administration as well, uh, I so have no idea the, what you're talking uh, about, Alberto. <laughs> the consensus is very, very short. You know, U.S. investors have gone into emerging markets, but no one, no one likes Europe. So there is a consensus saying that yields would go to four, four or five percent. Uh, having said that, the 2.4 percent number for the budget deficit is just 0.1 percent higher than last year. So you know, last year we had 2.3 percent deficit. Italy has a current account surplus. Uh, which means that you know the deficit comes from interest costs. Um, there's there's more exports than imports, um, and there's eight trillion of savings that uh, Italians have, and around 70% of bonds are held either by the Bank of Italy through ECB purchases or by Italian institutions. So really, here the government is making an effort at creating financial volatility, um, trying to gain consensus from public opinion, trying to portray the EU as, a, as an enemy. And we've seen this before in other countries. Uh, having said that, the coalition is fragile. Um, it's not stable. And uh, you could see a point where the northern supporters of Mr. Salvini say, this is enough. You know, you're damaging our business. You need to break up from uh, Mr. Di Maio, who's been promising effectively free income to, uh, to the unemployed and, and, and very high spending, which are unrealizable. And you can see that from the latest uh, declaration of success, you know, Mr. Salvini is absent. So he's, he's not taking a position in favor of, uh, in, in, in extreme favor of the budget. He's taking a much more moderate position. So there's going to be uh, clearly some volatility. But if you look through that, um, there's potentially attractive opportunities also in other parts of Europe, not necessarily in Italy, but other parts that are widening that are falling in, in sympathy with, uh, with Italy. Like what? If you look at Spain, for example, or the UK. Uh, well, you have, you have bond yields um, adjusted for currency in the UK or in Spain, which are wider than many emerging markets. You know, if you look at the Barclays uh, bonds, uh, subordinated bonds, they're wider than Ecuador. Uh, if you look at the Spanish banks, you know, they're wider than uh, sub-Saharan African sovereigns. So there is a structural short in Europe. Um, you don't need... Europe to uh, have extremely high growth. You just need Europe not to break up, to, to and you get paid very well for that uh, for that risk. Alberto Gallo, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, really interesting to think that even if Italy perhaps is not a buy right now, given the political uncertainty, the relative widening of other areas in Europe 
do offer some opportunities. Alberto Gallo, Partner and Portfolio Manager for the Algebras Macro Credit Fund at Algebras Investments. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.